0: Luke chapter 19 in your Bible. And this is a very famous story here that you're familiar with. How many of you ever sung about Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? All right, just about everybody on the planet, I imagine. And uh, we're going to talk about him here today. Luke chapter 19. All right, look up here a minute before you read. Are you ready to listen today? I got this sense that I'm pretty good on sensing my audience. I got a lot of experience. I got this sense sometimes that people are kind of, oh, well, you know, Clemson lost last night. (laughs) Carolina blew out a team that our team could have beat. And um, it's kind of, you know, uh, Afghan is bad and uh, everybody's got COVID. And I don't know. I, I just hear I'm planting my body, but I ain't really here today. So, I want you to get here today. You ready to move? Okay, I want you to listen today because you've heard this story a hundred times, but I got some good stuff here for you. Now, I want you to get it and get your heart warm spiritually and go out of here today ready to serve the Lord Jesus. Amen? Well, Roddy's smiling down here. He's ready to go. So, got a little expression from him. And uh, so, let's read in God's Word here. And uh, get our hearts attuned. Luke chapter 19. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He sought to see Jesus who he was, and he could not for the press because he was a little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste, and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner, and Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, forasmuch as he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And you may be seated. Go back with me, if you will, to chapter 18 in your Bible there before you look away from it, and go to verse 35 of chapter 18. It came to pass that as he was come nigh or near unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the, way, by the wayside begging. So we have Jesus entering Jericho, the city of Jericho, back in chapter 18 and verse 35. And I preached on it, how he healed this blind man. And uh, the story of that is in the next few verses there. Now, apparently Jesus is still on the outskirts of the town. When we come to chapter number 19 and verse 1, It doesn't say he's nine to Jericho, but that he entered and passed through Jericho. So he's entering into the city as we begin chapter 19. In those days, the Romans would put a custom house, they call it, or a a tax collection booth on the highways leading into the city. And whether you were going in or coming out, you had to stop there and make sure that you had paid your tax bill And so this was a very um, common thing in that day. And obviously, Jesus is coming into town. He must have a big crowd of people with him, following him. And as he enters the city, he gains the attention of the chief tax collector, who's probably sitting in that booth, in that tax collection uh, house there. And somehow or other, Jesus caught the attention of, now, this man whose name we know as Zacchaeus. Number one today, I point out to you a curious sinner. A curious sinner, and I see that in verse number two. There was a man named Zacchaeus, chief among the publicans, and he was rich. He was chief among the publicans, meaning he is the man over the other tax collectors. We know if he was a tax collector or a publican, We know that he was despised by the people. They looked down on these. This was the lowest form of life to the Jew because Zacchaeus would have been a Jew. But he has, he's a turncoat. He's working for the Romans, and worst of all, he's collecting taxes that the Jews didn't want to pay to the Roman Empire. They hated that. And even still worse than that, They know he was cheating because these publicans always skim the top here. They would charge the people for the assessed tax and then they would raise it a little bit when they wrote out the bill and that was their portion. And so we know that he is not respected and esteemed by the people of his community. They look at him as, as sort of a traitor to the Jewish nation. And verse two says that he was rich no doubt he had made a fortune skimming his fellow man. And then we go down to verse number three, and we see in the last phrase there, that he was little of stature, small of stature. He's a short man. I don't know how tall he was. People weren't as tall in that day as they are today. So he was probably five, five, or five, six or something. Small of stature, as the Scripture says. But we see something very commendable about him in verse number three. He sought to see Jesus. He was interested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this curious sinner here is very curious about the Lord Jesus. Perhaps he had seen Jesus as he had come into town. Perhaps it was right there near him. And he had seen the Lord Jesus give sight to blind Bartimaeus or to the blind man there. We're not sure it was Bartimaeus. And so he had seen Jesus give sight to the blind and this caught his attention. And he's so short, he can't see over the crowd. It says he can't see for the press, the crowd of people. And so he, I guess, has figured out in his lifetime that if you're as short of stature as he is, you've got to find a way to get up and see the sights. And so he runs. There's an enthusiasm here. He ran ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 4, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Notice the detail. Luke even tells us the specific type of tree because he wants to show us that this is not just a, this is not a children's story. This is a true account from the life of the Lord Jesus and so, when we read these, don't think that these are just uh, nice little moral stories of some kind. No, this is a true account of a real space time happening. It happened in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the detail is written here, so you will get the cro- proper picture. This is, in fact, a sycamore tree, not an oak tree. I mean, the detail is there, so you will live the account in its reality. And so he runs with enthusiasm, and he climbs up in a sycamore tree because he wants to see Jesus. But let me give you a great truth, and something everybody here needs to remember, that uh, before he was looking for Jesus, Jesus was looking for him. Before he was looking for the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was looking for him. And before you ever even thought about the Lord Jesus Christ, I can tell you Jesus was interested in you. He was looking for you. Now, a curious sinner, but number two here, I see the sinner's friend. A sinner's friend. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I chose to call this message today true conversion. True conversion. But I also thought about calling it the sinner's friend. And if you don't get anything else before you leave today, I want you to hear me on this one. Jesus Christ is the friend of the sinner. That means that Jesus Christ is the friend of every one of us because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, doesn't it? So you know what you can do? You can think of that point, the sinner's friend, and say, and that means he's my friend. Jesus Christ is my friend today. When I read my Bible and I study the Scripture over and over, I, am, I notice the fact that the life of Jesus Christ is characterized by compassion for other people. If ever there was a man on this planet who was a compassionate man, it is Jesus Christ. If ever there was a person who had a deep and serious and genuine concern for other people, it was the Lord Jesus. If ever there was a person who truly cared for the lost and all the people of the world, but especially the lost people of the world, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that love is the very essence, the very nature of God. What does 1 John tell us? God is love. God is love. It means it's his very nature. He can't act any other way than to act out in love. And Jesus Christ was God. And so you would expect Jesus Christ to exhibit love in every single situation of life, in every situation You're always going to find the Lord Jesus Christ acting in love. Even in those times when he was uh, uh, acting in a way that might appear that he was angry or that he was perturbed in some way, he always acted in love because love is acting in the best interest of other people. love isn't touchy-feely. Love is an action. And so Jesus sees Zacchaeus here. He reads in his heart, and in his mind, this man really is interested in me. He's curious, but his curiosity is moving to a deeper interest. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins to talk to him. He is the sinner's friend. And Jesus loved all kinds of people. And the rest of the people in this crowd would have despised Zacchaeus, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved a blind beggar back in the last chapter that we noticed last week. He loved the woman at the well who was an immoral woman, but it didn't keep Jesus from showing and demonstrating love to her. He loved lepers, those who had to stand and say, unclean, 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 and they couldn't even approach anybody else, and Jesus walked up. I noticed in the story a couple of chapters back, when Jesus healed the 10 lepers, that it says the lepers came to him and he touched them. He touched them. You and I read that in Western modern times and it's not very significant to us. Highly significant if you lived in that day because you couldn't touch a leper. If you touched a leper, you were ceremonially unclean. But Jesus wanted to convey love and compassion And so he touches the untouchable, the lepers that day. Jesus Christ loved, obviously, the tax collectors, the most despised. He loved the fishermen. All classes and all kinds, all races, all sociological levels of people. There's nobody that our Lord didn't love Now, you know, the reason that I stress that is so many people, and and this can happen with uh, Christian leaders or it can happen with anybody, really, but we can love people generically, sort of generally, but not love them personally and and specifically. And Jesus didn't love. He didn't look over the multitude and say, I love y'all generically. He looked over the multitude And he saw every one of them, and he loved every one of them personally and individually. I'm trying to make you feel and sense again that the the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of this universe, loves you personally for who you are, just as you are. I heard about a guy that was a professor in a college. He was a child psychologist, and he professed his love for, for children. He taught child psychology at the, at the university. And they decided to re-pour the sidewalk in front of his house. And so he came home from work, and the walk had been poured, and all the neighborhood kids had come and jumped up and down and played in the walk and written their initials and stuck things in it. And boy, it made him so angry. He was furious. I mean, he was cussing mad. He was just carrying on. He was on a rampage. And he came the next morning to his class. He was telling them about it. And he was, oh, so-and-so kids came, they messed up. And one of the class members said, well, professor, I thought you loved children so much. He said, I do. I love them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. And so Jesus didn't just love people in the abstract. He loved them in the concrete, didn't he? He loved them personally and individually, the sinner's friends. I dwell on that point because let me ask you a question. What is your attitude toward lost people or people in general, but specifically lost people? I ask that, that question of myself. What is my attitude toward lost people? I think there's two attitudes that we really have to avoid as Christians. Number one is the idea of being self-righteous. It's just easy to look down on people that behave in a manner that you don't approve of. And it's just easy to say, you know, I don't want anything to do with them, and I just need to avoid them. And we can be self-righteous like the Pharisees were. We see the ugliness, and there's nothing uglier than self-righteousness, is there? And we see the ugliness of self-righteousness in the Pharisees. Over and over and over, they... They don't want anything to do with people who are sinners. That's the wrong attitude on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is, the, is an attitude of permissiveness toward it. That we just say, well, we don't care. And uh, we don't ever speak to them and talk to them about God's grace that would save them from their sins. There's a story in the Old Testament that's always captured my attention. It's the story of a man named Eli. He was a priest. He was the priest that you remember when Samuel went up, Samuel the prophet went up to uh, the temple and his mother had uh, given him to the Lord and she put him in the care of the priest there and the priest was named uh, Eli. And Eli had sons of his own who had grown up and become priests. And there's a verse over there, it's in 1 Samuel chapter number three and it shows his permissive attitude towards sin, the other extreme. You have self-righteousness over here, and you have permissiveness over here. And Eli was on the permissive end of the scale. In 1 Samuel 3 and 13, it says, his sons made themselves vile, wicked. They were committing fornication with the women who would come to worship at the temple. And, And here the priests were seducing them and and having a sexual relationship with him, And it says here about Eli that his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. He didn't say a word to them. His sons made themselves vile, extremely wicked and immoral. And he didn't even say anything to his sons about it. And by the way, he was ultimately punished for that by God, for his permissiveness. Now, what is my attitude toward people. Am I judgmental and self-righteous looking at them? They don't live according to my standard and my approval, and so I don't want anything to do with them. I avoid them. That's the Phariseeism It's so ugly. But the other side of it is I can accept people, but I don't have to necessarily approve of their lifestyles. I can accept them and love them like Jesus did. And Jesus accepted everybody, but he didn't approve of everything that everybody did. And so it makes me look down at my own heart when I talk about Jesus and his attitude toward lost people. He was the sinner's friend. Now, in verse 5, Jesus stopped under the tree where Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, had climbed. And so he stops under the tree. Boy, what a powerful thought that the creator of the entire universe stops and he looks up under a tree. And he sees the wee little man sitting out here on a limb looking for him. And Jesus speaks to him. He looks up. And what does he say? He invites himself to go home with Zacchaeus that day. Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house today. And he invited himself. He didn't wait for Zacchaeus to speak to him. And here is salvation so clear. Now look in your Bible here in verse number 6. And Zacchaeus made haste, and he came down from the tree, and he received Jesus joyfully. There's salvation. If you want to make a note in your Bible, There's a great description of salvation. He received Jesus. He received him joyfully. Turn three or four pages over to the right in your Bible, to the book of John. It's just a few pages to the right there, chapter number 1 and verse number 12. John 1 and 12. But as many as received him to them, gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. A very significant passage of scripture, John 1 and 12. Many of you would already know that by heart. In John 1:12, it shows me that two things happen when people receive Jesus Christ. First of all, They're born into the family of God. As many as received him to them, gave he the power to become the sons of God. There's the relationship, sons of God. When a person receives Jesus Christ, they are born into the family of God. You can now say, with all the sincerity of your heart, God is my father, I am his child. There's a second thing that happens when people receive Christ. He gives them power to become. In my Bible, I have under the, I have underscored it there those words: "power to become." You know why I want you to see that? Because so many people think, "Well, now I receive Christ, but I don't know if I can live it or not. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be a hypocritical." professing Christian, I just don't know if I can carry out the, the demands of Christianity. and I, I just don't know, Brother Bill. And so often I've had people say something to me, I just hope I can live it. And if you say that to me, you have, you, you have indicated you don't really understand what salvation is. You see, if you receive Christ as your Savior, He gives you the power to become. And that power to become is the Holy Spirit who indwells your heart and indwells your life. And so the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes in. Romans says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. He's not even saved. This idea that you get saved and then there's another experience, a work of grace in the future that you're going to get the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-uh, that's not biblical. The moment you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he comes and dwells and lives in you, and he lives in you forever, he never leaves again? And so a Christian is a person who is empowered, indwelled, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, you can thwart the power, you can ignore the power, you can live in such a way that God's power will not be working in your life, but if you desire to live for the Lord, you receive Christ as your Savior. Jesus will come in, you will become His child, and He will give you the power to live for Him. So He received Jesus joyfully. I want you to notice something it didn't even say He prayed. I want to get a hold of your attention a moment. There's no evidence that Zacchaeus prayed the sinner's prayer. There's no evidence that Zacchaeus ever said, Lord, come into my heart now and save me. Because I believe a person can get saved without praying. Now, I think it's rare, and I think it's easier to pray and ask the Lord to come in. It kind of stamps the time in your mind but it's not praying that saves you; it's receiving Jesus Christ, John 1.12. And so here he is up on here. Here he is upon the tree. And Jesus comes and looks up there and says, "Hey Zacchaeus, come on down, because I want to go home with you today. I want to go over to your house and spend some time with you." And he looks down into that face of Jesus. And he sees the Son of God in all of his glory. He looks down and sees this is the most loving, magnificent, wonderful, majestic person who ever lived. I watched him as he came into town, the way he dealt with that crowd of people, with that blind man. He spoke and that blind man was jumping up and down and shouting and could see. And now he is standing here saying he wants to go home with me. And he received him. He said, I want him to be my friend. I want him to be my savior. I love this guy. I haven't even, I just now met him, but I'll tell you what, I love him already. And he received the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus went to his house that day and gave him power to become, power to live for him. And so I see, number three, a true conversion. Number one was a curious sinner. Number two is the sinner's friend. And number three is a true convert, conversion. What do I mean when I say a true conversion? I mean true conversion is what happens that produces a supernatural change in the whole person. When you get saved, it's not just your soul that gets saved. Now I know we use terminology like "he saved my soul," but no, true conversion is, is conversion is change is transformation of the whole person, the whole being. It's a process. The new birth happens in a second in a moment. But then the rest of your life, there's a process going on. The Holy Spirit's working in your life. And so when Jesus said, I'm going home with you today, the process started. Because he's teaching and spending time here with Zacchaeus. And you see, this supernatural change in your life is God's empowerment through his Holy Spirit. And, and boy, when a person gets saved, everything about them changes, their thinking process. How many of you have said something like this through the years? Boy, before I was saved, well, that didn't bother me. But now that I've gotten saved and grown in the Lord, that my view on that's changed. Almost every one of us can say that who's, who's a believer. Go back to chapter 18. Now, this is really interesting. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 24, I preached a whole message, what, a couple weeks ago on a certain ruler who came to him and said, what can I do to have eternal life? And when Jesus had gotten through his conversation with him, he said to the man, come and take, you know, take up your cross and follow me and sell what you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and so on. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And when the man heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And I guess he just turned and walked away. He just could not meet the demands of the Christian faith. And when Jesus saw it, verse 24, Jesus was very sorrowful. How hardly shall they have rich, that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? In other words, if you have been blessed with a lot of material things, Boy, there is a pull there that a poor man doesn't have. And it will pull you away if you don't really commit yourself deeply to the Lord Jesus Christ. This man turned away. And Jesus said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? And then Jesus made this statement It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And you've heard that. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. But hold on a minute. Go back over to chapter number 19 and verse number 2. Here's a rich man. He was very rich, verse 2. And in verse 5 and 6, he's just received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. So, go back over to chapter 18 and verse 27. Jesus said, as that rich man over there walked away from him, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So, he didn't say it's impossible for a rich man to be saved, but he said the rich man's going to have to be very, very genuine, very, 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 very sincere to overcome the pull of his riches. And over here, we see that sincerity demonstrated. Do you know what we see when Zacchaeus trusted Jesus, another rich man? We see the camel going through the eye of the needle. The camel can get through the eye of the needle. And this rich man put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus went home with him that day. I want you to notice something else about his conversion. If you will look True conversion is always accompanied by repentance. True conversion always has repentance accompanying it. And so Zacchaeus gets saved, and Jesus is at home with him, and they're talking. Maybe they've spent the whole afternoon. We don't know the timeline. And in verse number 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. You see, the Lord was working in his conscience. He knew he had cheated. He didn't get those that, that those riches that he had through honest business dealings. He had cheated to get them, and he says, Now, Lord, I'm repentant. I have a change in my about my sin, about myself, and about you. And I'm going to make restitution to these people I've cheated. And if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation I will give him four times back. Boy, this guy really got saved. I mean, he got saved down to the bottom of his bootstraps, didn't he? Because he's willing to give away half of his assets here in order to get himself right with the Lord. You see, repentance always accompanies salvation. Bishop Ryle the great, English preacher said it like this. He said, grace can be seen like light and it tastes like salt. Grace can be seen like light and it tastes like salt. What did he mean? When people get saved, you can see it. And it shows up as light and it shows up as salt where Jesus said, we are the salt and the light of the world. I want you to note one other thing. I want you to note the response of this crowd. Back up in verse 7. They all murmured. They all didn't like it that Jesus had gone to the home of a publican, this vile man that they looked down upon in their self-righteousness. And they were offended that Jesus would lead Nicodemus to himself. Now, they rejoiced. If you go back to chapter 18, when he healed the blind man, and the blind man came to Jesus, boy, there was rejoicing. The whole crowd was praising the Lord. That same crowd can't praise the Lord. Not one word about it, when Jesus heals or when Jesus saves. This man, Zacchaeus. Look with me in verse number 9 and underscore something in your Bible. This day is salvation come to this house. This day, today, salvation has come to this house. Wait a minute. You know what that means? Salvation is a person. Salvation is a person. Jesus was the person who had gone to the house of Zacchaeus. Salvation is not an experience. Salvation is a person. And Jesus said, when I came in your door, Zacchaeus, salvation came to your house today. Nobody is too bad to be saved, and nobody is so good they don't need to be saved. And Zacchaeus and the blind man in the previous chapter revealed to us this is the whole mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says it like this. And so, we have the curious sinner. We have the sinner's friend. We have the true conversion. And lastly, we have the purpose of the Lord Jesus. The purpose of the Lord Jesus. And you see it in verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Note that verse and mark it well. I think it's one of the most significant verses in the New Testament. Now, if you go and study formally the book of Luke and you get the outline of it and then you get the theme of the book and then you get the key verse. And in every Bible study I've ever seen, the key verse to the book of Luke is chapter 19 and verse 10. This is the key verse to understanding the entire Gospel of St Luke The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the purpose of Jesus. This is why he came. This was his mission. And it ought to be the mission of this church. It ought to be the mission of your life and my life that as Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, we seek and save. The lost. And it is the number one thing that could happen to us in life. The most wonderful thing would be that I could lead somebody who didn't know the Savior to eternal life. So when I stand up here on Sunday morning and I welcome you to the service, and I say, now take your connection card, turn it over. There it is. We're going to go over the scorecard here. How many people did we invite to church? How many people did we give a piece of literature or tract to? How many people did we share the gospel with or witness to? How many people are we working with in our life, trying to bring them to the Savior? You see, what I'm doing there is exactly what verse 10 talks about. We're seeking. We have come to seek and to save lost people. And that was not only the mission of Jesus and it's not only the mission of Bill Monroe, but it's the mission of every single Christian church and every Christian that really wants to please him. Listen to these words, Luke 5, 31 and 32. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And Zacchaeus was sick. They that are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous to repentance, but I came to call the sinners to repentance. In 1 Timothy 1 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Most of our churches today, sadly, are not soul-saving stations. They're museums for old spiritual relics. They're just a bunch of people been saved forever and are sitting around and enjoying each other's fellowship and have forgotten about all those people outside our walls that need the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so, such a tragic indictment of our age and of our churches at a time when we have more resources and more opportunities and more freedom to lead people to Christ than in any generation. And we've forgotten it. We're distracted and diverted with other things. I want to call us back in our minds one more time on this day, this Labor Day weekend, and say that the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ must be our mission. It must be the purpose of the Florence Baptist Temple to reach people for Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.